Hello, and welcome to the Screen Composer Studio, a podcast about the musical storytellers behind some of your favorite films, shows, video games, and more. I'm your host, Adrian Ellis. Todor Kobokov grew up in Bulgaria, where at age seven, he was accepted into a music-focused school so competitive that there were kids waiting in the wings to take your spot if you stumbled. He began showing up to help out on the sets where his mother worked as a producer for the National Broadcaster, sparking his interest in the intersection between music and the screen. After high school, he moved to Canada and at age 20 completed a degree in piano performance at the University of Toronto, where he fell into a crowd of musicians including future indie darlings like Gonzalez, Peaches, and Feist. This led him to performing, producing, and arranging for artists like Stars, Metric, Sarah Slane, Chaos, and more. At the same time, Todor was getting his foothold, creating music for commercials and indie films, eventually landing a coveted spot in the Canadian Film Centre's Slate Music Residency, where he would meet and work with iconic director Bruce McDonald. Now he's firmly established his reputation as a composer, with films like Born to be Blue starring Ethan Hawke, and series such as Bitten, Ransom, and Most Dangerous Game, while his work on Cardinal has won him two Canadian Screen Awards. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a rating and sharing the episodes with your friends and followers. It really helps us grow and share the stories of these amazing creators. Now, please enjoy my conversation with the one and only Todor Kobokov. Todor, welcome to the show. Hi, Adrian. How are you doing? I'm awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is uh, really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. So I don't want this to sound stalkery, but every once in a while I sort of get curious about where you're, where you're at and what you're doing. And so I go to your website and sort of dig around a little bit. So I think I've seen three iterations of your website over the last years. Um, and the last, the one before the one that you have now was very, uh, it was very minimalist and just had sort of big pictures of all the projects you've worked on and not a lot of like written information. Uh, and now the one that you have out now has this one of my favorite, I think, bio sections that I've ever read. It's just oh. you have this sort of like very playful tone and you're talking about this whole uh, adventure. Uh, you make it, it sounds like an adventure of your life and your adventure through music. And it's just, it's really like delightful to read. Um, thanks. I'm glad that somebody read it. Nobody's ever commented about that. <laughs> oh, really? The first one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, it's it's just super fun. And, and I find... Um, you know, most people have bios that read either very dry or they're just sort of a list of places they've studied and awards they've been given and all that. And it's not really that engaging or human. Do you do you, do you spend a lot of time thinking about, uh, you know, what you're putting out into the world in terms of what you project as a as an artist, as a creative person, as a as just sort of a human? I mean, everybody thinks about it, of course. Uh, I can't say that I'm spending too much time on it. But uh, uh, when the time scheduled for, you know, put out a website comes, you know, <laughs> yeah. in, in that brief period, I think about what's the, how's, you know, what's the best way to, uh, um, you know, manage my um, image and, and what, what's out there. And uh, I'm trying to not only portray, you know, what my skills or what my bio is, but also, you know, some of my personality and I think that uh, my sort of branding is very much focused on uh, uh, being injected with humor, you know. And yeah. I think that uh, that's uh, very important. Uh, my my grandfather used to say that without without laughter, there's nothing else in the world, you know. Uh, and apparently, so, they uh, say humor is one of the signs of high intelligence because it's sort of like so, it's like a weird problem solving thing in order yeah, to make a I joke. Mean, or, a, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, a lot of people think I'm a very serious guy, and it's couldn't be any further from the truth. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> it's just, it's just. I think it's just the you know the the Bulgarian looks. <laughs> yeah. 
Do you think, I mean, I, I imagine, or I have a sense that uh, a sense of humor is really important for what we do because we all, I mean, the, the, the sort of standard saying is we, we almost act as a therapist to the filmmakers or producers who are in the end run sprint of pr production. They're usually a little bit traumatized by what's gone before. And if we can approach what we're doing with a sense of levity, I think that helps the situation quite a bit. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So winding back uh, in, in your bio, you were born in Sofia, Bulgaria, uh, very musical family, all bass players, apparently. That's an That's right, yeah. How did everyone get into the bass? Why was the bass the primary instrument? Um, well, my grandfather was an orphan in a small village in the uh, east end of Bulgaria. And he was playing a traditional Bulgarian instrument on the street when he was a kid. And a famous Bulgarian conductor was there for some reason and really liked him. So oh, he invited wow. him to go to Sofia and uh, join his orchestra. I don't know. I guess he was touched by him somehow. Um, and uh, at some point, my grandfather decided that, you know, that's his, that's his jam, you know. Um, and uh, he became a rather well-known professor, but also was known for writing uh, a very sort of well-respected etudes okay. and a series of exercises for bass players, but also having uh, transcribing a lot of popular work at the time from violin and cello and viola to bass, and the bass being mostly an orchestral instrument at the time. It wasn't really a soloing solo instrument. Right. Uh, he was able to kind of um, uh, transition it into sort of more in the mainstream. Um, and um, my grandma, I think that that's how they met. She was a bass player as well. She was the first woman to play bass in, a, in the opera in Bulgaria okay, at the right. time. And she used to say, you know, like people get up and just stare, you know, because they've never seen a woman play uh, the bass. Um, <laughs> and naturally, you know, uh, they had my mom play the bass. She only carried that over to, you know, graduating, but uh, after that had a different career. And I was supposed to be a bass player myself, but uh, I guess the, my, the, my classical piano was going well and they decided to just like, you know, let's let them roll with that. I mean, yeah, your classical piano was going well. So, I mean, you were truly uh, a child prodigy in the sense that you, your education began very early and you were accepted to the Lubomir Pipkov Music School, which is a very uh, highly regarded school in, in Bulgaria at the age of seven. That's very early. Uh, yeah, I mean, the it's, uh, it's just like any other school, but, it, it, you know, the music uh, subjects are kind of integrated. Okay. So, you know, it's, it starts at grade one and goes to grade 12. So, you know, it wasn't really, in fact, it was a little late for me, you know, being a September child uh, starting at seven. So it just basically that was grade one. Oh, uh, okay, right. Yeah, so it's just like any other school, but um, it's structured in a way where, you know, you have your main instrument and then you have the, you know, ear training and all these other things sort of peppered throughout the week. But you are also studying all the regular subjects and, and learning as any Correct. other school kid yeah. would. Yeah, well, that's, that's fascinating. Right. Yeah, and uh, the interesting thing about that school is that at grade four and at grade seven, uh, there's an exam, and then if people are trying to get in, do better than you, you get kicked out. So, <gasps> oh my uh, god! <laughs> yeah. 
So you can imagine, you know, being uh, being on top of your game was a sort of standard for everybody because nobody wow. wanted to get kicked out. Yeah. And I don't know if I agree with that or I think it's brilliant. I kind of, you know, kind of torn uh, about that that because, you know, I uh, still have PTSD from just the pressure and the stress. Uh, you know, of, that's... Of that. that- yeah, that's such an interesting question because you look at a lot of people who end up becoming high performers and there is usually that there's some sort of stressor in their life that that requires them to be high performers. And and on the one hand, you can sort of, you know, uh, success leaves clues. You, you sort of see where they got to because of that. But on the other hand, you go, well, would you be a different person or would you be more fully exactly. formed or, you know, what is your, yeah. what's the totality of your emotional and holistic life as a human being? You know, that's exactly. so interesting. I mean, it, it, it's, there's, there's a kind of like, uh, <laughs> you know, Eastern block kind of mentality about that, that sort of like uh, early decisions that may not be, you know, it wasn't necessarily your choice to go down that route. Do you think, do you, did you ever, were you ever resentful of the fact that you were kind of like set on this path so early? Not really. I really did enjoy music a lot. Mm. Um, I mean, I did enjoy playing football or soccer a lot too with my friends, but, um, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, I, I kind of resented some of the compositions I, I was sort of forced to, to play. Okay. And I was like, I was, you know, um, I, I grew up with my grandma in a tiny little apartment and uh, she would have a nap in the afternoon. I would sort of wait for her to fall asleep so I can play whatever I wanted to play. Ah. Uh, so, you know, that's, uh, you know, I always enjoyed playing music, but I just wasn't into certain pieces that were part of the repertoire at the time. Right. Uh, and also my friends played music. So, you know, we naturally we all played music together uh, all, all the time. Um, and uh, each classroom had a piano in it. So between classes, you know, kids would just get together and jam on the on oh, the piano. So it, was, cool. it was a ton of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you describe that as being a lot of fun, making great friends, you know, really enjoying it. It doesn't sound like this was uh, all rulers slapping across wrists all the time and just a horrible experience. No, no, it was, it was really, really great. I mean, huh. I'm very, very lucky to have gone through that. And as I said, you know, because everybody was motivated and everybody's practicing and everybody's trying to be the best they could possibly be, yeah. you never really felt that pressure, you know, you're yeah. really, like trying to, you know, uh, it wasn't like out of the ordinary to practice three hours a day for everybody, right? Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I skipped the last year because I got accepted here at U of T and I really, uh, that's something I miss, <laughs> uh, you know, that was cut short a little bit for me. Oh, yeah, right. But at the same, and so this is very performance-based and of course you ended up performing, you know, in a, in a, in a band uh, later on in Sofia uh, and that sort of is one track of your career. What I read in one interview was that your mom worked at a local TV station as the producer of music programming, and you kind of grew up on those sets, and that that was something that sort of drew you into the idea that you sort of had that idea of wanting to be part of that world from the very beginning. Is that is that accurate? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's like my entire sort of brand of as a guy who is into you know popular music, but also into into like classical is based on my on my history. You know, studying. Classical music, and uh, being in a family of a classical music professor, but also my mom being sort of hip, you know, and and being in, working in a TV station and going, you know, filming all these rock bands, um, and me being around that from a very early age since she was she was a single mom. 
So um, yeah, it was uh, it was a ton of fun, and I I loved it, and I loved being around adults and just feeling like part of the crew and stuff. Right. And I think my first job was a cable person. You know, back when cameras <laughs> had cables. You know, so wow. behind the behind the, behind the cameraman and and just making sure the cables don't get stuck. You know, oh and, wow! Uh, yeah. And absolutely, absolutely loving it. <laughs> So were you did you imagine yourself as the performer or or behind the scenes and did you have a sense of like film scoring or TV scoring at that time? Didn't really think about that that way back then, you mm-hmm. know. Um and uh considering I have a, a still have some sort of sta- stage anxiety. Um I never maybe I didn't really feel like I'll be a frontman like a singer, but I certainly yeah. enjoyed being on stage and performing. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, almost like, uh, uh, I was shy about showing my skills, but I wanted people to hear them. If that makes right. sense. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, that makes sense. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, if you can just hear what I do and see my hands, but not my face. <laughs> 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 so that's, uh, that's where I was at the time. Yeah. Tell me about, uh, who, who was William Aid and what did, uh, he, what what role did he play in your life? Oh man, he is. Uh, so uh, I got accepted at U of T, and uh, at the time, you know, I was a you know raging teenager with long hair and thinking I know thinking I know everything. Right. Um, and I certainly knew at the time that I did not want to be a classical piano player, and I've just you know been in this successful sort of uh, jazz acid jazz band, um, and. Um, my f- first lesson, he was assigned as my piano professor at UFT. My very first lesson, I said, listen, I have no desire to become a classical piano player. Nice to meet you, but I'm out next year. I'm switching to the jazz program. <laughs> Just, you know, letting you know what to expect. Right. Um, and knowing who who he is... At the time, he should have just thrown me out. I don't know why he has the patience to deal with me. But he said, well, you know what? We are stuck for a year, so let's just um, make the best out of it. And then he sat down and played some piano for me, and my jaw dropped. And uh, I said, okay, I want to be like you. Wow. (laughs) And uh, he became a very important figure in my musical development because he was not only teaching through an example, so he would play a lot uh, for me, but also he would have this uh, interesting um, method of addressing my personality more so okay. versus my technique. You know, at that point, you know, I had a pretty pretty decent technique and, you know, I was able to play uh, a few pieces that, you know, not a lot of people can play. Mm-hmm. But, you know, be able to do it uh, flawlessly three out of ten times, let's say, you know, and in order to increase that percentage, you know, I had to change something in, in my, uh, approach to it rather than technique. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was very key, uh, um, part of my life to think about what, what I do more and do less. Okay. That's, that's really fascinating. In order to increase the percentages of, let's say flawless execution or, um, a high quality outcome. Correct, you yeah. didn't address it by hammering away and saying, just practice more or, you know, run the scales. You had an at, like there was something about your approach and, and it had to do with your personality. I'd really love to dig into that more and also hear about 
how you apply that to what you do now because the sense i get just from listening to your music and you know seeing the kinds of projects you're working on is you strike me as someone who doesn't accept good enough ever. Uh, yeah i mean i i, I try to <laughs> um, uh i just uh i just don't want to be embarrassed when people listen to stuff that i do <laughs> yeah know? so uh and i'm my my own worst crit- critique you know yeah. Um, but yeah, very much so. You know, I, I've just uh, talked to uh, the residents of the Slate program this year at the Canadian mm-hmm. Film Center. Uh, and one of them emailed me back because I talked about that as well. You know, I said, I, I think a lot and, you know, do less. So um, when I'm on a project, I, I technically work all the time because I think about it all the time. Yeah. You know, I could, yeah. I could be uh, buying some groceries, you know, or checking if the eggs are broken, but still I'm like thinking about what I need to do and how to tackle certain challenges that yeah. I have in the in the project I'm involved with or projects in in many cases. So it's about an intentionality about thinking about what the actual problem is as opposed to just yeah, hammering away mindlessly. I think, uh, yeah, I think that you know, uh, jazz improv was a thing that really taught me how to sort of let my imagination flow and and you know hear things in my head before i you know i make them a reality mm. you know to the in the throughout the years you know that would you know be anywhere from just a melody or chords i can just hear them oh what would be like one four and flat nine something rather sound like you know and you start being able to to do these things in your head rather than just you know hammering away and trying to see what works wow yeah uh, and that uh, throughout the years has gotten to the point where it you know involves now sound design. You know, being like, how can I achieve this thing? You know, yeah. And I'll think about it for three hours and then just execute once I figure it out in my head. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a time saver. That comes from William Aid as well. You know, because uh, you know it's it's popular for people to assume that you know classical players will practice seven eight hours a day. You know. Yeah. And he was just like, why, why are you doing that? You know, figure out what the problem is. You know, oh, maybe it's your thing, maybe it's your fingering, maybe it's your wrist too high or something, but like observe what you're doing and try to figure out where the problem is. I, um, I think that's, that's an incredibly important um, note, I think, or, or, or just a way of approaching things and, and a way to think about things that I don't feel like a not, a, not, a, not enough people do. They figure just like keep hammering away. Whereas it's like, well, maybe you're trying to knock down a wall that has a doorway just to the left and you can just yeah, exactly. walk through yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you got to pay attention. It's important. Yeah. <laughs> uh, something that he used to say. Huh. So continuing on, I mean, it, it seems there is sort of a parallel path and I'm not super clear on the exact chronology, but somewhere in the, like at the edge of the U of T experience or maybe the end of it, you become involved in this whole live improv hip hop uh, collective thing. Yeah, it was uh, my second second day. Yeah, second day at, uh, at U of T. Second at, uh, day. Wow. Um, second day, I met this guy, Dominic Salo, who is now known as Maki. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know, you know, I guess the outcasts kind of attract each other. So uh, I could barely speak English at the time. It was really, I was really overwhelmed with, you know, the cultural shock of just immigrating here it was really it's really really tough for me and i just uh moved in with my father who i didn't know very well and uh-huh. it was just a lot going on and yeah. uh, i met i met dom and he said why don't you come in uh you know i have a band let's let's jam and um 
then you know uh, that's the beginning of a lifelong friendship between yeah. us. But uh, at the time, he was uh, in another band with uh, Jason Beck, also known as Gonzalez, and uh, Mero, who's known as Peaches. And uh, you know now they're you know who they are, but at the time, you know they were just you know some some kids I've just met. Uh, yeah. And I was surrounded by them, and they were very sort of uh, what's the term I want to use eccentric. And their approach to music was very, very sort of exciting to me. Um, so I remember when uh, G- uh, Gonzo uh, had gotten a sampler, a Roland sampler, and we we're like, "Oh, nobody's ever used a sampler. What's this thing?" Uh, and you know, we'll we'll sample records and make beats, but we'll make this game where you only, you know, with a clock, you only have five minutes to make a beat, and then record <laughs> them all to a to a ghetto blaster, and then you know, fill, fill up the, the tape and then the next day get stoned and listen to it and, you know, see like what, uh, what was good and what wasn't. Um, but, you know, they had all kinds of like fun mind games and improv things that were really exciting for me at the time. Cause you know, classical music was so just like do this, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to sort of, um, break out of that. Yeah. Um, um, also, another thing about my piano teacher was that he would, uh, once a week, we had these concerts with all his students, sort of to practice playing in front of the audience. Yeah. But he would often get everybody to play the same piece. Okay. Uh, and do you think that would be problematic? But in fact, he was encouraging people to express themselves through the music, even though it's the same piece. Yeah. Uh, and make sure that their personality comes through, even though everybody's playing the same piece of music. And he used to say that if that's the case, then he's achieved his goal as a a pedagogue, as a teacher. And if everybody sounds the same, that he's failed. And that message sort of gets repeated. I'm going to jump forward a little bit here, but this message sort of gets repeated to you by the famous um, uh, film composer agent, Robert Messenger, who said, who really encouraged you to find the movies that reflect your musical voice rather than just like anything and 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 I love this statement that he made to make sure you're cast in the movie as opposed to being hired for the movie. Correct. Yeah. I mean, uh, easier said than done. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I, I guess no matter what genre or, or whatever score I'm working on, I'm still trying to be like, it's still me, you know? Yeah. That, uh, you know, whatever it is, it's still me. Do you have a, do you, do you have a sort of clear uh, sense of what that means? So, like, can you tell if, could you actually like formulate something that that is uh, that you could articulate clearly in terms of what that is, or is it just a feeling? Is it intu- intuition? It's intuition. It's a feeling. Um, I'm sure others can study what I've done and be like, "Oh, here it is. Right <laughs> you know, here is this yeah. chord progression that he uses all the time, or these sounds." <laughs> um, but I don't really think about it that way. Um, uh, it's really a feeling and uh, excitement. You yeah. know, if uh, I want whatever it is to be fun and exciting and mm. um, kind of, uh, you know, get the audience engaged. If it's more of a, uh, you know, um, kind of pedestrian that I failed, you know. Ah, oh, right. And I guess that's just something you sense. Uh, I guess in the other part of it, I'm just sort of thinking back to what you were saying about, um, you know, the, what what uh, William Aid was telling you about over practicing to overthink what your voice is is probably not the best idea. It's just like let it be, it. Yeah, yeah, let it be, and, and it sort of comes out almost inevitably. Um, I, I can't remember. I think it was somebody responding 
I wish I could remember who, who this was about, but somebody had this very peculiar way of writing strings and they were asking an orchestrator, well, how do I fix this? How do I become like, how do I write strings properly? And their response was, oh, don't change this. Please don't ever start writing strings the proper way, quote unquote, because this method or whatever you're doing creates the sound that is really you. There's no right or wrong. Yeah. This, this is unique. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I'm looking at the list of people that you ended up working with, I mean, we've got, you know, all these people that you're involved with during uh, this live hip hop thing, including, you know, who, you know, Gonzalez and Peaches and Feist is there. And then, you know, you end up working with some of the biggest names in Canadian, um, you know, pop and indie rock history in the 2000s, like stuff that I was absolutely obsessed with during that time. Um, was that was that an offshoot of that that whole uh, experience that you were already part of? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, for me, when uh, I finished TFT, I think it was a 2000, 2001. I was like, that's it. I'm never playing piano ever again. Bye. Uh, you know, I was so, I was super into a massive attack and Bristol hip, uh, trip hop and nice. playing with, playing with bands and started, you know, my own band with my friend, Lindy Voppenfjord. And, you know, just, I was just going to be, you know, a musician, musician forever. Um, and, you know, toured with, uh, lots of different people and, um, you know, having a great time, uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I really miss it sometimes, but you know, with, with time, it's, you know, I was getting older, there was no really a clear path for me, how I would, I would have uh, longevity in my career as a musician. Uh. Um, and I, you know, being grow, growing up on sets, you know, I was like, I'm going to give this uh, music to picture thing a try. Um, and that's how I got into film. But yeah, you know, I was, um, um, I was at the time doing a lot of string arrangements for people. That was kind of yeah. like my, my thing. Uh, so I was able to uh, apply some of the skills I picked up throughout my, you know, education in Bulgaria and at EFT to popular music. Yeah. Uh, and I think that there was a, a remix album by Bjork where Brodsky Quartet had done one of the, uh, her song, the arrangement to one of her songs that was really, I was really impressed by at the time. So I was like, I want to do this. And, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'd uh, rented a couple of mics from Long McQuaid and got some of my friends uh, in the stairwell in the, in the conservatory and just like holding the mics and did my first arrangements for Sarah Celine's song. Wow. Uh, that way. And, uh, you know, then people heard that and was like, oh, I want to do that, you know, do that for me and so on and so forth. Um, and also, you know, having my own band and trying to um, push limits with that as well. You know, it was just yeah. it was a ton of fun. Man, I mean, I, I just can't, I can't even imagine that, like how cool it would have been to be at the center of that. I mean, you know, Set Yourself on Fire, uh, Star's 2003 album was huge. I was listening to that obsessively. Uh, and part of it was that chamber pop sound that you created with them that is just so like, was so informed. It, like Arcade Fire fits in there somewhere as well, right? Did you actually work with them or? No. They were, but, no. but that sound at that time, like Arcade Fire and Stars of Sound, and yeah. that yeah. whole Baroque pop kind of idea, that was like mm. the sound of the early 2000s for sure, at least on my playlist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah, that and, you know, later on with uh, Emily Haynes' solo album yeah. as well. That was yeah. very sort of uh, With Soft Skeleton, yeah. 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 Um, that's a fun story with, uh, with Stars. Um, my friend Victor had to drive me overnight there for the session because the label wouldn't afford, well, didn't want to pay for my ticket <laughs> and i didn't want to miss the opportunity so he uh you know we left at like 10 p.m 
got to Montreal for the session and then drove, turn around and drove back. Oh my God. You didn't even yeah. stay. Wow. No. Yeah. And those are the things you do when you're young and it's like, well, that was fun. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just like pull off and sleep in the car on the highway on the way back. Uh, wow. But, you know, I got to do strings for stars, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's amazing. And your own album comes out in 2009, right? Pop music, is that when that was sort yeah, of released? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was sort of my homage to classical Todor, you know. Um, yeah. I, I really, at the time, I was missing playing piano and yeah. wanted to, to you know, do something about it. And um, um, I had a very old, beaten-up, upright piano, which is a whole other story I'll tell you some, some other time. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't really good enough for me to work on. So I was looking to find an instrument on, at the time, Craigslist. And I found this uh, Steinway grand piano uh, that I still rent. It's been like how many, like 12 years? Huh. Um, from a family who, you know, they just needed some space to put their Christmas tree. And, you know, they had this instrument that nobody's using it. Uh, so I've been renting it for, for 12 years from them. Oh, no um, kidding. But uh, once I got this instrument that was in this tiny little apartment on College Street, you know, was, uh, I was, took, I think it was like two months to uh, just, uh, you know, write this record uh, and kind of be, a, you know, kind of a homage to everything that I've uh, done in the past with classical mm -hmm. music. You know, one of my friends who I went to UFT with said, oh, I can hear every piece you ever played kind of coming through your compositions. Yeah. Uh, and that was kind of the uh, the purpose of it. And also, you know, I wanted to break the stigma of uh, uh, what I didn't like about classical, the classical music scene was that, you know, a performer and audience on the other side, and it's very sort of uh, proper, you know, and uncomfortable and intimidating, <laughs> uh, which is why I called the record pop music. I wanted to right. be, you know, for everybody. And when I performed it live, I would, uh, do them in galleries and, and um, lofts and whatnot. And, and I'll take the, the top off the piano and have people sort of around me, around the instrument. Uh -huh. uh, so to sort of break that, you know, wall between that I was mentioning. And oh, cool. uh, before each piece, I will talk about what the piece is about and take sort of questions from the audience and make, make it a lot more interactive and playful rather than the way I was used to, you know, yeah. get on the stage and look at the audience and everybody's just staring at me all, you know, <laughs> it was, you know, so it was, um, that was kind of the purpose of it. And, uh, sadly it kind of fell into, it didn't sort of fall into any category that was acceptable at the time, even though it did right. well. Yeah. But, you know, um, uh, what I guess what I'm trying to say is I hope they will do better, but <laughs> I'm still very proud of it. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's more than ripe for a resurgence. You should almost do a reissue as a new, as, as something new, because right now piano is having its moment. And I mean, there are so many neoclassical piano albums. I, and, and you know, the success that uh, Gonzalez has had, Childy Gonzalez has had with his piano albums, which I honestly, when, I, when I'm listening to pop music, I'm going, I feel like he heard this record and got inspired, like... <laughs> he, he he heard something in what you were doing and went, oh, this sounds interesting. Uh, I mean, cool. I did I did send it to him to give me some thoughts. Because <laughs> <laughs> and and there's some there's and I really recommend everyone listening go check out this album. It's absolutely fantastic. It's a beautiful blend of classical playing and the it's just an extraordinary virtuosic performance. 
Um, great technique, but lots of heart and beautiful musicianship. And then this beautiful blend of the classical and sort of, you know, later it feels like it goes into Debussy and it has all and like the French influences definitely in there. It's got very romantic parts. It's got very modern scoring kind of sounds to it in some parts. It's it's but it's absolutely a beautifully integrated thing that feels, you. you know, these things when you listen to something, you go, it feels like this has always been there. It's not uh, it just feels very. um yeah, just like in and of itself, it has an, a natural thing. So yeah, I definitely encourage everyone to go and check it out because it's no, a fantastic. No, no punch-ins on that record. It's all one takes. Wow, wow, yeah. that's even more incredible. Yeah, I really wanted to 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 do that. So uh, I I had to record mostly overnight because at the time I lived on College Street, so the streetcar would go by all the time, <laughs> ruin everything. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, uh, and also, you know, there's. There's a few mistakes there, but I wanted to, I really was keen on having it as a one take. Nice. And, uh, n nothing was ever put on paper either. Oh, what? Wow. Yeah. That's so truly remarkable. Uh, a big mistake because I don't remember anything anymore. So if you okay. ask me to play any of them, it's like, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what this is. <laughs> you have to relearn it all. Oh, that's funny. Um, another thing I wanted to say about that too, is it's really nice to hear a grand piano that and a, and a bright sparkling sound uh, that sounds very rich because we're so inundated with felted and muted pianos now uh, and a lot of uprights and very close mic'd and very intimate. It's all great, but it was kind of nice to hear this and go, oh yeah, really, it's that whole sound. And it's still very, uh, it's, it's, you know, just as relevant now as it is, as it was ever. You did a lot of uh, TV scoring or commercials, I would say, for like a lot of ad work. And you actually worked with Crystal, uh, David Crystal, Crystal Music. I actually know David. I've done a little bit of work with him way back. I think he actually probably gave me some of my first uh, paid work ever in, in the ad world anyways. Same, yeah. And so that was a real testing ground for just like, you know, production chops and, and you know, grinding it out, I'm sure. Yeah, a friend of mine introduced me to David. Uh, I was in third year university and... Uh, he just said, yeah, just come hang out. Uh, and that's what I did. I would go and just sit in the back and be silent and just uh, mm -hmm. uh, be fascinated by this guy, Roger, who was the engineer at the time, because, you know, he was a Pro Tools ninja. And it's like, how, 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 how can you fly through this so quickly, you know? And <laughs> um, my moment came when uh, they were working on a, a, an ad for Nikon, and I was super into Eamon Tomat at the time. So, you know, I was doing a lot of beats in that kind of world. And their reference, their tempo is Eamon Tobin. So I was like, ah, let me, let me try this one. Um, and I think I had like a couple of hours. The client was really not happy with what was happening at the time. And uh, mm. uh, they really liked what I did. And it was my first sold commercial ever. It was for, uh, for Nikon with uh, some beats. Uh, and from that point on, you know, I got involved in a couple more and a couple more and um, then I started working with other companies and at the time was, you know, I was able to pay the bills just from that because it's, uh, yeah, there was a lot of work. It's not like now and, um, was well paid. It was you know, 500 bucks a demo. So just, you know, do three, four demos a month. You're good to go. Yeah. That's funny because actually one of the, one of the, uh, pitches I did for David was, uh, also a Nikon commercial, a really short thing. And they wanted boogie woogie piano. I was absolutely the worst person to pick for that because I'm not a piano player and I just had to hack my way through it. Had I known you'd already worked with him on a Nikon, I was just like, just get Toter to do this. What are you asking me for? That's I'm so a terrible boogie woogie player too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you would have done much better than I did anyways. This podcast is brought to you by the Screen Composers Guild of Canada. 
celebrating its 40th year in 2020. The SCGC is a national association of professional music composers and producers for film, television, and media, whose mission includes promoting the music, status, and rights for film, television, and media composers in Canada. Special thanks to the SOCAN Foundation for financial support. For more information on the SCGC, please visit www.screencomposers.ca and follow us online at Screen Composers. And now, back to our show. You mentioned that one of your first features was uh, through Craigslist. That doesn't happen to be young people fucking, was it? No, it was a kind of like a horror film about a, a, a nurse in a hospital who gets attacked, lots of blood, you know. Okay. But uh, anyways, yeah, I was, you know, I was trying to uh, move away from commercials and get some work with um, in film and, you know, post at the Ayatsi office and, you know, look for work on Craigslist. So one person bit and that was my mm. first feature, yeah, for, I think, was it... Uh, Four hundred dollars or something like that. Oh wow! The enti- an but, entire feature for four hundred dollars. Yeah, but you know, I needed one. You know, the first one's always the hard to get. Yeah. Oh yeah. Get, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's just kind of funny. Like, there's a certain point at which you're going like, no money's almost better than any money. I I think I I did my first feature. I'm sure for no no dollars. Mm-hmm. I think probably way back in the day. And then you ended up working with Bruce McDonald via the CFC and. Was that sort of a big stepping stone? Well, how did you connect with Bruce and what was it that it led you two to work together? Uh, I mean, I've known Bruce from from the hood, basically, you know, because oh, uh, really? he okay. lives in the same neighborhood that I do. So I would see him on the street all the time. And, oh, you know, wow. he's the guy with the hat and I'm the tow guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, we knew each other. So when we officially met, it was like, oh, you, I know you, <laughs> you know. Um, and we, yeah, we met through um the slate program at canadian film center and he had a film at tiff and it was two weeks before the premiere he decided to scrap the score so um he got myself and my dear friend ian lefevre to score the husband in i think it was 10 days Mm. um and um that was sort of the beginning of our relationship how did you make it through well was that a challenging score or did you find a way through it that made sense within 10 days? Uh, man, you know, sometimes it's kind of fun when you're pressured like that because you just go, you don't doubt. Right. And, you 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 know, you pick pick a lane and you just go go with it, you know? Uh, right, and, yeah. And uh, my Ian and I worked in, like, I would sleep on the couch while he's doing his thing, and then I will wake up and I'll continue, and he would sleep on the couch, you know? <laughs> it was just sort of nonstop. Uh, right. And Bruce will just pop in and bring some coffee and chocolates to like, keep us up. <laughs> uh, Very strategic. And just, yeah, and just sort of like check in on what's going on. But, uh, you know, I think that score worked out really well. I mean, Ian is an incredible musician and uh, the the marriage of our two worlds kind of just really worked for that project. Hmm. Later on, we worked on another film for Bruce Hellions, which was a, a horror film. Was that uh, a different experience, or is it sort of in the same in the same uh, vein? It was of different. Food? No, yeah. it was different. We had we had some time. We <laughs> had some uh, time. We got we got to do some fun stuff with the kids' choir on that one. It was really fun. What's uh, what's Bruce to work like? I mean, he's one of our you know iconic Canadian directors, and you know he certainly he's has a, a big personality. I mean, he's a, he's a fantastic guy. You know, he's got a great taste of music. He's got some really wonderful stories. You know, he was uh, he got into film being the driver for a 
head of the Canadian Film Center. What's his name? Uh, Norm Norm Norman Jewison. Yeah. Yeah. So he he was his driver, and that's how he got into film. So he's ah full full of stories, and and uh, you know he's just a so straight up kind of guy. You know, I really like that about him. He just says it how it is. Nice. Uh, but uh, usually he's got a very clear idea of where he wants to go and what he wants to achieve. So uh, to me, that makes a great director. Do you, do you um, I mean, I, I get, do you enjoy working with directors who push you? Of course. I mean, I just enjoy working with directors who direct me, period. You know, sometimes it happens when you're just sort of left to, you know, interpret. Um, and that I don't like. Right. Do you have a... When, when you're in that situation, when you're trying to get something out of a director or a collaborator and they're unable, they, they, they just not giving you what you need. Do you have uh, strategies for dealing with that or do you just kind of go, okay, I guess I'm on my own. I'm going to have to figure this out. Um, I've gotten a lot better. I used to get rather frustrated with situations right. like that. You know, I had a situation where um, the 27 second cue in a scene where a couple's making out on the couch and it's close up. So, you know, uh, uh, one producer wanted me to write something fast and celebratory. So I'm just quote unquote, and the other producer wanted me to make it slow and sexy. And, <laughs> you know, I had to address and, and say, you know, oh, guys, I don't, I don't know what to do here, you know? And they said a little bit of both. Oh God. So, uh, you know, fast <laughs> and slow. Fast and um, slow. I used to get very frustrated with situations like that, or 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 when directors would give you or producers references that are, you know, it happened recently. Somebody said, you know, I really like uh, Chernobyl and uh, White Lotus, mm -hmm. and uh, so <laughs> <laughs> great. Um, Split the difference, no problem. <laughs> but uh, I've gotten I've gotten a lot better with trying to understand what is it that they mean and trying to understand them as as a human, as a person, you know, rather yeah. than just take this position of like, ha ha ha, look at them, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. To to taking the position of like, but what is what are they trying to say, you know? Yeah. And yeah. what is it that they really like in those two scores that you know maybe they just have a hard time expressing. Yes. Um, so normally I'll try to use normal, normal, normal language, not music language and yeah. film language to, to communicate with uh, filmmakers. And I think that's something I learned at Canadian Film Center. Uh, and then, you know, going back to my upbringing on set, you know, learning film language has really helped me communicate with the people I work with. So, you know, I think what the, at the end they were trying to say is that they liked a certain level of ex extravagance and something quirky, for lack of better description, that these two scores had, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they say, like, oh, okay, I get it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, normally I'll try and extract that from, from whoever I'm working with, you know. Right. Uh, because uh, sometimes or often I'll ask for, send me a, a playlist of things you like. You know, and this, you know, try and understand the personality and their taste and the boundaries of their taste, you know, and then work within that uh, after that. I love that approach. I, I, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about assuming that people are not idiots and going, well, there's a reason why you're saying these things. You just don't have the language to be able to express it in a yeah, way. Yeah, I was terrible. I was terrible. I used to make fun of people and, and not really just get frustrated. I mean, like, yeah. I can't believe this person, you know, uh, but that was just the <laughs> immaturity, I think. Um, and, you know, trying to also communicate that you're there to help 
Yeah. You know, you know, I would say 60% of what we do is repair work. You know, they've gotten mm-hmm. to the end. They're very stressed out. Money's gone. <laughs> You know, and then they have a piece of shit in their hands, and then you, yeah, you know, or at how, least how they to, think it's a piece of shit, yeah, yeah. And then you're like, no, you know, let's let's see what we can do here, you know. And turn I, you know, for myself lately, I found that when people come up with something like Chernobyl and White Lotus, I go, oh great, I'm actually excited by this because you've given me the opportunity to triangulate something that will be truly original. Like if I can figure out the difference or this commonality or how those two things could live together, then I'm mm. going to have something that's going to sound really unlike anything else. There you go. There you go. Yeah. I mean, uh, as I said, I was terrible at this. And uh, in the last uh, three, four years, I'm trying to get better. Mm. Uh, even when you get notes, you know, I used to just, you know, get upset and go on that Twitter account. There's a Twitter account for composers that post, post uh, <laughs> notes. <laughs> They've gotten... Really like, oh, wow, really? Oh, God. Yeah, really, <clears throat> I can't remember the name of it, but look it up. It's really funny. Um, it's anonymous, so, obviously, so it's, you know, yeah. people do get to post really some fun stuff. But I've, I'm trying, I'm still to <laughs> continue to try and understand what people mean and what, what they're trying to yeah. sort of get me to do. You know? I mean, sometimes those notes are really funny, you know, like you don't have to get frustrated. But you're just like, wow, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, tell me about backstabbing for beginners. You were working with a Danish director, and this one did push you uh, quite hard creatively, but apparently it, it sort of got you into interesting new territory. Yeah, I mean, um, I was super into European cinema at the time, so I was thrilled to work with a Danish director. Mm. And um, how, do, how did you uh, connect with him? Um, the line producer, Daniel Beckerman, and I had worked on a uh, Bruce McDonald movie together called The Husband, and he was the producer on that film. So uh, we we met at the Communist Daughter and had a beer, and then we got along. So oh, what a gig. great! That's a great place to meet. Yeah. Um, and what was what's the film about? Um, it's based on a book uh, about uh, corruption in in the uh, in Europe and the Middle East. And uh, he wanted to create sort of a, a film on the scale of Hollywood, but with the storyline and intricacies of European cinema. Okay, yeah. Um, and so I, for me to create these two worlds, I used uh, only a modular synthesizer and a very large string ensemble. You mm. know, So kind of get a little bit of both of those worlds into one. When you say very large, how big was the ensemble? It was 52 uh, strings only. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, for me, that was like the biggest I've, I've done at the time. So yeah. it was, it was well, thrilled. That is big. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, um, working with modular since no, nothing is, uh, you're not able to save anything. So, you know, you can't really build a palette. So it was a very different approach of how to write certain things and themes and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was more about writing away from the screen and then adapting it to picture. That was yep. one of the challenges, but also, you know, tuning wise, you know, that's those, uh, uh, the, it's not something that it's digital, you know, it's a lot of analog stuff. So, you know, you have to sort of tune it by ear and then hope that when the strings go on top, it would work. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, that's the samples we used to temp in some stuff. They're so perfect you know in real life it's not always the case so yeah it was like when it came time to spend the money and go to Prague and record them I was just like, you know please please work 
Did you, were you uh, in Prague to record the actual score or did you do it remotely? No, I, I, I went to Prague to do it. I love that place. And uh, um, being from Sofia at the time, I was, uh, uh, you know, hoping to be able to jump over to Sofia and visit my family, which wasn't the case, but uh, I had to come back, unfortunately. But that was, you know, I, I do enjoy being part of the process rather than being remote. You know, I've done a lot of remote sessions, especially in the last two years, you can imagine. But uh, I really like being in the room and feeling the orchestra, you know. Oh, of course. Uh, I just an incredible. I remember when the first time I heard them play, it was like, wow, like, you know, this is, this is amazing. <laughs> like, what a buzz, you know. Yeah. To hear your own music played by a large ensemble of humans, that's it's beautiful. Does not get old. Yeah. And were you playing back the the Eurorack stuff, the modular synthesizer tracks? Were you playing those to for the instruments to tune from, or was it something they couldn't really? Was it integrated or separate? Uh, well, I thought that they would be able to hear them, but what, when we were in the studio, the uh, engineers there said that they preferred the players not hear them because it would help them to have better intonation. Interesting. Uh, so. We just roll with it and it just sort of worked, you know. Okay, right. Uh, so I was able to hear it in the control room, but the players on stage were not. Oh, that's very interesting. Would you do it yeah. that way again or do you do you think that it would help to hear uh, layups? I mean, it really depends. I think that what I did at the time is I, I don't know how many of the 50 people paid attention, especially because of the language barrier. But yeah. I really wanted them to know what they're playing. So I, yeah. I told them a, b a bit about the story, <clears throat> told them, you know, uh, sort of what the plot of the movie is and what the music's trying to achieve and sort of set the mood, you know, put them in that world as much as possible without hearing any of the stuff I've done. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something I try to do with all the sessions, you know, like I can't really play the movie for the players at the moment, but I try to inform them as much as possible on what is it that they're they're playing, you know. If you had to pick three words to describe yourself, what would you pick? Hmm. Uh, introvert. Um, chef. Yeah. And uh, clown. <laughs> Goes back to that humor. That's so interesting, huh? There, there is an interest. I mean, we were talking about this off the top. This idea that some people see you as very serious, and it might also just be that when someone has such incredible musical prowess, that you just have to assume that there's a seriousness there, um, and probably a, a certain amount of tone. I know a lot of my other uh, European friends uh, have a, a way of speaking that's not necessarily as um, or can be interpreted by Canadians and, and and Americans as being a little bit gruff or serious or, you know, I mean, that, that, that doesn't yeah, totally translate. Absolutely. Also, you know, English is my second language. So for the yeah. most of, uh, you know, for the last 20 years, I've been trying to improve it. Yeah. You know, like when I would tour with bands, I would listen to Grammar Girl podcasts and learn new words all the time. Yeah. I still, like, often I'll ask, uh, you know, friends or, uh, or my wife's like, hey, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> Happens all the yeah. time still. So I think that with the... Um, trying to improve my language skills, I think that, you know, trying to be proper speaking, yeah. you know, often comes out as perhaps too serious. Hmm. 
but uh, it's part of that's part of it as well. I think. Yeah. Uh, in relation to that, I, I read a, in one interview the the interview was sort of suggesting you know that there was a, a lot of talent in the mix in terms of like all the things you're able to do and sort of um, the variety and, and diversity of scores that you're working on and just sort of what you're able to do in terms of the quality. And you said it's not talent; it's hard work. Yeah. How does focus and discipline, like what part does that sort of play in in uh, what you do? Again, going back to the William Aid thing, because it almost seems like work smart, not hard. Uh, but I mean, I have to imagine that this idea of like uh, you're, you, you must have, based on what I know about your background, just an enormous amount of discipline and focus. Yeah, I mean, that comes from the classical piano background, you know, so you, you practice two to five every day, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh uh, also, I, I suppose I'm rather driven. So, you know, I want to succeed and I want to get to a place where I'm proud of what I've achieved. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, most of the time people ask me, people ask, you know, how do you, you know, always write and create, you know, instead of... Um, and I think there was a, it was a TED Talk and it was an interview with, um, what's his name, American singer with raspy voice. The piano has been drinking is one of his songs. Um, the name escapes me right now, but he said mm. that you can't just wait for inspiration to come and find you, that, you know, you have to go and get it. Right. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, I think that it's important to, even if you've hit a wall to, you know, um, trying to find inspiration to move forward, you know. Uh, Phil Nimmons is a, uh, was a professor at U of T, a jazz, uh, jazz professor and uh, when somebody asked him that question, he said, go kiss a girl and then come back and tell me that worked. <laughs> 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 so, um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, what we do is rather demanding. You know, you have to, you have crazy schedules, so you always have to be on top of it. And uh, yeah. I'm always, I also really enjoy what I do. I love being in the studio. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, I know sort of the dot, t- uh, times of day where, what part of my brain works best at, mm. you know, like I, w- I wouldn't really do a lot of creative between noon and two in the afternoon for some reason, just not working. Yeah. But uh, early in the morning and later in the afternoon, that's where like all the, the good stuff comes out. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, uh, sometimes you just don't have a choice. You have to, you know, when you have to, especially in an episodic television, you know, when you're in a 13 episode show that's got to mix every single week, you know, you just got to go, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody's going to wait for you. And that's part of the profession as well. I think it's, you know, being able to, to create a lot of music very, very fast. In terms of, you know, where you put your attention, where you put your energy, um, in order to have, a high quality output consistency and, you know, just be high performing, you have to say yes to certain things and no to other things. So we were talking a little bit earlier about the messenger, uh, Robert messenger's idea about like choosing carefully about what you work on and what you don't. What are some other things in your life that you say no to? Uh, or, and conversely, what, what do you feel has to be in your life in order to be uh, a good creative person? Uh, well, we don't really have the luxury, uh, especially early in the, our careers, to kind of pick what we work on. So uh, for the most part, I've tried to just inject wherever, whatever I work on with 
me <laughs> mm. or or convince the producers or the broadcasters about um what is it that I'm doing and kind of sell it you know so to speak um and I think one one successful story I have is when I said I'm not going to change the rules I'm just going to replace the sounds with something a bit more current that right. was my sort of like simple simple explanation but really I was going to go really far left <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, and just trying to explain, I think you know, if you explain to people what is it that you're doing and how uh, how it uh, how it would help their project, you know, they sometimes they go for it, you know. So I think that I've through time I've gotten better of explaining what is it that I'm doing and why. Yeah, it's not just music, you know. What's the purpose of using this sound or that instrument or all that? It's kind of trying to get into the fabric of the story and and. Uh, help the visuals and all that so um um also you know always do this thing where i'll send three um different options of of doing of how what the palette of the score would be and mm -hmm. making one purposely really bad wow. <laughs> <And> <laughs> so uh you know they, everybody goes through the middle like if you're you know just like shopping right you know so uh then i'll do one that's like purposely really far and then make the middle one just where I really want them to land. <laughs> right. A little bit of strategy there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, having said that, um, I, I don't really have genres particularly that I try to work on. I just really try to work on good projects, you know, right. movies that I like. So if I read the script or watch it and I know I'm not really feeling it, I'll most likely pass. Mm. I just don't see how it would benefit me or them to have this relationship Then I'll path right in terms of uh again sort of staying on the theme of saying no you told me a story before we started recording about a, a point at which you had to say no um and you know it had to do with fencing off uh your energy and fencing off what you felt was an encroachment of um you know a production that was getting out of hand in terms of what it was demanding from you and that that was no longer tenable can you talk a bit about the idea of, you know, how maybe balance uh, in your in your life versus work, time management, energy management, mental health, um, how you look at that as a sort of big picture thing? Um, well, let me start with, I was just uh, talking to the, the Slate Music Program uh, kids a couple, of, a couple of days ago. And they asked me, you know, the, the topic of the conversation was uh, specifically on TV series. Mm. And they asked me a similar question, and my answer was, like, you know, it depends whether he's single or not. Hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, um, it's, you know, doing what we do is very demanding. It requires a lot of mental uh, strength to be able to, you know, you have to be the composer, the performer, the engineer, you know, the tech, you know, all, all these things. Um, but there was, you know, three, four years where I just worked every single day for 11 hours, you know, um, and go home, sleep, get up, do it again. Um, I've worked through Christmases and New Year's and birthdays and all that. And now I'm trying to, as I'm getting older and uh, trying to pay more attention to my health as well, um, I'm trying to at least keep it, you know, under 10 hours a day. <laughs> but um, uh, I think that it's important for us as a community to find some sort of um, 
formula where you know as if we if we were to be in a union where you know producers just know like well we it takes this long to, to achieve right. something right yeah. um yeah. i think that you know the standard is like you know four or five mi- minutes of music a day which is in my case never the case <laughs> you know i've had um days where i have to write 20 minutes of music you know and that's right. sort of my my pace wow um, but uh it's just crazy you know you burn out and you don't realize how burnt out you are until you look back in, <clears throat> in time. And now I think about, you know, five years ago, I was like, man, I can't believe I pulled that off. Right. Uh, but, you know, it comes with a price, you know, it comes with depression, it comes with uh, abuse of substances, you know, it's, uh, we know of composers who have uh, unfortunately passed away because of uh, stress, you know. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's very important to find a balance, but also we be disciplined. I think that... Um, if you if you suggest to people just put put working time in the calendar, you know. So if you have to start at ten and wrap up at six, that's it. Yeah. And uh, uh, but don't start later than ten and don't stop before six. You know. Right. But uh, you know, I, I sort of started to implement the calendar as a very very kind of key part of my structure in life. Period. You know. Uh, so you even though let's say I'm only working on one project and that's the only thing I'm doing, I'll still put it in the calendar. That those are the hours that I'm going to be working on it. Yeah. Um, but uh, to further to you know, uh, I think that it's important to educate filmmakers as well on how what the process is. Right. So I recently, yeah, a very demanding schedule was presented to me and expect me to work over the holidays and. Uh, you know, write an hour of music in three days or something like that. So I just oh had to, instead God. of, again, you know, uh, instead of being defensive and angry, I just very calmly explained, okay, well, this is what it takes. You know, I need to go through these steps. You know, I need to spot the movie with a director or series. Uh, I need to go home and then, you know, interpret that spotting and make notes. And then, you know, usually there's a, a number of instruments that have to be performed. So, you know, if the length of the movie is, you know, let's say an hour and there's 40 instruments, you know, imagine how long it takes to play each and every one, you know. <laughs> so like very simple talk. Yeah. And then I have to mix it and I have to export it and then I have to upload it to a server somewhere and then you have to download it and watch it, you know, and all that needs to happen in that time. And you don't have a music editor or, you know, anybody else to do that. And they're like, oh, okay, I understand. You know, but so I think that education's key for on both sides. Mm, mm-hmm. And you, with new collaborators, do you tend to have that conversation early on? Or is that something that sort of comes up when it comes up? Well, I guess the first question I always have is, when's your mixed date? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, that informs what we can accomplish or not. Right. Uh, so uh, a key part of my palette and what I can achieve is based on time as well. Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, if, I'm, if I have four days to score an episode, I'm not really going to be doing elaborate orchestral arrangements, you know. Uh, it's just impossible. Mm-hmm. So um, time also informs how I approach uh, different projects. Do you give uh, different options based on budget and time? Or do you say, this is what we want to achieve, you need to extend? Uh, uh, I mean, I just, uh, you know, based on the budget and the timeline, I tell them what it's do- what's doable, what right. is crazy, and what's not possible. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> they go, let's go with yeah. the middle one, the crazy one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as long as it's doable. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I, w- I wonder if, uh, you know, it, it, I'm assuming that uh, you've won two CSAs now for Cardinal. Is that right? Uh, for Cardinal two. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. And, and obviously uh, very well deserved. Thanks. Was this, uh, was this a, is this a tough show to work on? Was it very demanding and stressful or was this more of a, more of a, an experimental joyous kind of uh, procedure? Uh, I don't think that there's anything that has to do with film that's not, not stressful, yeah. you know? <laughs> right. So, uh, especially when boundaries are pushed. Uh, ah. uh, but, you know, um, understanding the hierarchy of, of TV specifically has really helped me, you know, because the broadcaster is the boss and then there's the producers and then, then you know, the showrunner and then the directors and the editors and, you know, it's a lot of people. Um, yeah. So... Communication is key. Um, I wouldn't say it was easy. It was it was very hard, especially at the beginning. Um, mm. Bell Media was the broadcaster, and you know they were they were worried. You know, they, I don't think that what they were used to in terms of Canadian TV musically was uh, at, at all what I was doing. You know, so it was a leap of faith on the on the on their on their behalf. And and. Why do you think they were like? Where do you think that fear comes from? Is it it's uh, is it just because they're not used to it, or they have a certain attitude of what the show is, and they don't think their audience is going to go for it? I mean, I, I a very good advice was given to me early on was you know if you get a show, watch a bunch of shows from that network to kind of get mm. what their brand is. Right. So you know. Um, now when I approach TV, my first question is always, who's the broadcaster, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even now with streaming services, there's totally a vibe to HBO versus Amazon, you know? Sure. And Apple versus Netflix. Convincing those parties that what you do is the way to go is, uh, almost like you gotta be like a salesman in a way, you know? Um, I'm sure when, you know, John Williams said, two notes is going to be the score for Jaws. They probably <laughs> laughed at him, you know? I think that's a good example. <laughs> sure. You know, dun, dun, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, what was so crazy about the Cardinal score? Like, what, what was sort of the, the edge that was pushed and how did that come to be? Um, well, a, a bit part of that show was uh, nature and, you know, specifically Canadian, Northern Ontario kind of cold winter you know and there was a big part of the sound design team as well you know wind snow and uh sort of spirits and uh mystery um so a lot of the score was trying to basically fit in into that palette mm. so you know sort of can live seamlessly with wind and with snow and with uh, tension uh and at the same time kind of uh, really uh, shape the character of this uh, detective and, you know, his mystery and, and uh, also that, you know, his partner was from was French-Canadian. So, you know, all these things informed the, the sounds that I created for it. You know, there's a, a lot of even singing in it, which is kind of buried in, into this sort of uh, drony kind of landscape. Um, and... Um, uh, again, 
having that, but at the same time, you know, being lots of action scenes and things like that, you know, how would those two world worlds uh, blend together? So, you know, it was a f- uh, each season had slightly different palette, but uh, all of them were like intended with a purpose, you know, in the seasons. Mm-hmm. I think they were all different seasons. So, uh, you know, the one that's in the fall has a slightly different palette, you know, ah. than, than the one that the two that are in the winter and then one's in the summer. So the summer one has a lot of sort of, uh, went to High Park and sampled a lot of like hitting trees and whatnot. So all the, the drums and percussion were custom sounds that I've made from just doing that, cool. which I tend to, tend to do a fair bit. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. And you, one thing you told me again before we started talking is that it's a score that is deceptively simple, but is actually doing a lot of hard work in the background. Yeah, I mean, the the problem with the show was that it just felt like scene and then another scene and then another scene and another scene. And the producers wanted to kind of make it flow a bit better. So hmm. um, music would often come in or uh, the ins and outs were sort of extended. And was the, the, the job of the score was to make things flow and add, moment, add momentum to, mm-hmm. to the show. You know, the broadcaster right. was worried that it was a bit slow. Uh, and unorthodox, you know, the uh, bad guy didn't even appear until episode two. So that's like a big no-no for TV. <laughs> um, so there were, you know, there was a lot of issues and that had to be repaired that way. And the music had to be integral part of, of achieving what they're after. Yeah. Uh, a lot of huh. long scenes that need to be, you know, long and uh, sort of zen, but yet full, full of tension, you know, uh, things like that. One thing that strikes me listening to that score is the, as compared to let let's say some of your work uh, on your uh, piano album, pop music, and also for something like the introduction, like the opening music for Bitten, which has this very classical flair and it, it is very rooted in a certain type of harmonic language that I feel is very much your own. There isn't as much of a focus on harmonic movement or complex harmonic language within a cardinal is no, no, it's very, it's very, let's say through composed. Yeah. Um, it was really a lot of it. And I still am very fascinated by texture in in music. Uh, I, I was trying to, and still do, I try to achieve a lot uh, or the feeling of the emotion, not necessarily by harmonic progressions, but through texture and, uh, um, you know, I guess I've just gotten so bored of harmony, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, and I just sort of sounds so predictable, but, uh, a, a big thing for me was like, well, how can I add to harmony? What can I do to, you know, I can't just keep coming up with chords, you know, there's gotta be other ways to, to express a feeling or, you know, what, what do we do for those feelings where there hasn't, doesn't, we don't have a chord for it yet, you know? Yeah. So uh, texture is a big thing for my work. Almost kind of if you think about uh, um, what's that new MIDI thing where, you know, you can do polyphonic. Um, each individual individual note can have... Uh, oh, expression, ex- right? Yeah, yeah, Expression, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like similar concept, you know, but through, mm. through sound. What is it? You know, a lot of the stuff I did also for Cardinal is use software that's primarily for sound design to create some of, some of the interesting textures and then bring that back into my doll and uh, decorate even further. Yeah. Do you, do you have a, 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 do 
you have sort of a process that is sort of you could write down in a few sentences in terms of how you come up with the idea of a texture that will describe an emotion? Or like you said, you, you, we don't have court for that yet. How do you come up with something that is new and uh, but still clearly expresses that to any audience member that might be watching the show. Do you have a, do you have a, a step-by-step process for getting there? Or is that again, one of those things that is an intuitive process? Um, it's kind of a, it, there's no formula to it. I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just, uh, as I said, I'm trying to imagine and hear things a lot, uh, before I'm, you know, in front of the computer or, uh, um, you know, think about what would happen if I, you know, do a prepared piano mixed with this, you know, would that get me there? Or like, what is it? Like, what's the, you know, I worked on a movie about Chet Baker and, uh, a big part of, or a little part of the score, I'll say, is me scratching the strings of the piano. And mm. that is because I wanted the audience to feel the scratch because him being a heroin addict. Right, you know the sort of the you know the constant kind of anxiety of you know of of, um, of what it is to be a heroin addict. So I had to read yeah. what is it like to be a heroin addict to kind of <laughs> find a way to for the audience to feel that tension, but maybe subconsciously rather than yeah. you know. Also, the director didn't want any trumpet at all, so I had to find you know uh, a voice that would be something that it's not trumpet, but it's still very mm. Chet Baker. So you know a lot of a lot of thinking goes into into what I do. So I uh, I think that's kind of the formula. Just think about what is it that you're doing and why. Um, yeah. I think another good way to describe it is I don't really have set palettes. You know, like my here's my palette of three hundred thousand instruments. You know, I always start from <laughs> scratch. Nice. Um, and just to have you know what is it that I need for this particular project, and the rest is just you know cl- clutter that I need to get rid of. You know. Uh, and I do, I do try and use a lot of, you know, actual recordings, you know, I studied for so long to be a performer. It's just, would be a shame to just, you know, keep hitting a, ah, absolutely. you know, a, a sample library with phrases and whatnot, you know. And that, I think that really comes through that, that attention to detail and the commitment to that kind of, um, you know, performance and high quality and organic kind of approach, that acoustic approach really comes through. The scores feel very alive. Um, this has been great. Uh, do you have any, anything else that you wanted to cover or any parting words for the audience? I mean, uh, uh, a big thing I, uh, I have sort of, we talked about routine and, and whatnot, but I try to educate myself with something new every morning. I spend about mm. 15, 15, 20 minutes looking at YouTube videos, uh, or learning something new every day and trying to stay on top of things. That's uh, cool. So, uh, you know, often I'll, you know, also forget how certain things that I own work, you know, because <laughs> a lot of toys, but I'll try to constantly kind of keep the brain going that way and stay on top of things. That way you start to see trends and whatnot. So that informs me what to stay away from as well. Right. You know, like for, for a while there, you know, the certain, certain sounds and things are very in vogue and, you know, always trying to be one step ahead of that. That's really, I love that idea. So it's the, you do that in the, as a, as a part of your morning routine is 15 minutes of learning something new or reviewing yeah. something or just getting your brain going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it kind of gets me in the zone. So it's kind of like a warm up, you know. That's really cool. I think you I know, might steal that. Yeah. And like, if you know, if you're a runner, you know, you'll do a couple of laps just to kind of get the blood going. So it's kind of yeah. like that. You, and often, sometimes if I'm anticipating a shitty day, 
you know, I was like, oh, that's the last thing you want to do right now. Um, at least once I start doing things, I get going, yeah. you know, and there's like, nice. okay, let's, let's get going now proper, you know? Um, um, but that, that's helped me when you, when we asked me earlier about, uh, sort of discipline, that's a big part that helps me get going. Cause then I'm looking forward oh, what am I going to learn today? <laughs> you know, that's, I, I love that. That's brilliant. Can you think of something that you've learned or discovered recently that really uh, stuck with you? That was kind of a great moment. Um, I'm trying to think of something that, you know, one of the specials, you know, instead of giving you some sort of like gear talk, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the process of using your body as an instrument is really fascinating to me right now. Oh. Um, so, you know, being able to express through movement um, rather than, uh, you know, the CC11. <laughs> okay. Uh, so that's something that, that I'm really kind of diving into, uh, as well as just um, uh, music and sound as an experience. You know, if you mm. think of what UX means in the visual world, like yeah. how do I do that sonically? Okay, uh, right. So, you know, so installation, sound art. Um, and a big thing of part of that is if there's a record by Brian Eno uh, where it's based on self-generating music. So that's... Yeah. Uh, being a, something I'm quite fascinated by. So there's no beginning or end to a piece, you know, it just sort of exists, uh, which is, you know, easily achievable in, in the DAW, but I tend to do it a lot of with my modular gear. Um, so you apply a certain set of rules, but then, you know, things are randomly generated, you know, so you can say, well, only use these three notes, but which one follows the other one is kind of random. Yeah. Uh, and in creating those pieces, they don't necessarily have a tempo or... Um, uh, or beginning or an end, they just sort of exist. Um, so that's been something that I've been kind of trying to uh, implement in my uh, work as well. That's that sounds brilliant. I love it. I, this idea that you would do this study in the in the first thing, getting your brain to connect potentially disparate ideas, like this idea that like what does UX design look like in sonic terms? Like how can we apply that? I mean, th there's all these ways that that could just be a fascinating journey somewhere and end you in a really interesting place. Yeah, and then just uh, um, and letting go, you know, we're so, you know, all these rules that we've created in, in music, especially in Western music, you know, are, are you know, confining you in a, in a place that, you know, I want to get out of, you know, we know microtuning is another thing that I'm super into, you know, uh, in um, a show I worked on called Trickster, the director and the producer wanted me to, uh, they wanted to the show to feel like it's the regular world, but something's not quite right. Ah. Uh, so to achieve that, you know, I did a lot of sort of instruments that were purposely tuned out to kind of yeah. add un something uncomfortable to certain scenes. Um, so, but, you know, that, that mix and also not necessarily following certain um, scale or whatever, I just sort of use my ears to, to do yeah. it rather than like, oh, what's this, you know, microtune scale that I can download or whatever. You know, just really actually let, use your ears. That's so cool. Well, that makes me extraordinarily excited to hear what you're going to come up with next, if those are your, your jumping off points at this point. Um, where can people follow you and find out more about what's uh, what you're up to? You know, I'm not really big on social media at all. You know, mm. um, before my dog passed away, it was mostly pictures of my dog. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, 
Yeah, uh, I suppose Instagram would be a good place at Kabakov. Um, and yeah, other than that, I'm not a big social media person. I just uh, don't. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a bad thing, you know, uh, in in the modern world. But uh, it could, it could, or it could be the best thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just until I really feel like I need to, uh, like I would rather not. Yeah. Oh, I think that's brilliant. I mean, your uh, your fantastic career is proof in the pudding. I think that, you know, if you're not if you're not leveraging that, then maybe it's not necessary. Certainly yeah, has a lot I mean, of downsides. <laughs> you know, also, you know, uh, hopefully in post-pandemic world, you know, we'll be able to get together again. So, you know, oh, I used God, to get together please, with friends yes. all the time. So, you know, in yeah. real time, I'll, you know, we'll come to the studio and we'll yes. jam or try things and and whatnot, you know. So I think that hopefully we get, get to that place soon again, you know. To, Absolutely. To have those hangs and then, you know, we can actually interact with each other because there's a lot more to... Uh, interacting with other humans than just language or pictures, you know? So, uh, so true. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a perfect place to leave off. Thank you so much for your time. This is My super pleasure. fascinating. Lots of fun. Um, and I wish you all the best with the future work. And I, I'm, Thanks I'm, so much. I'm going to wait eagerly for it because I think it's uh, exciting stuff ahead. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider showing your support by giving the show a five-star rating and sharing the episodes with your friends and followers. The Screen Composer Studio is produced by myself, Adrian Ellis. Graphics and post-production assistance by Nick Grimshaw. Special thanks to our managing director, Tanya Dedrick, as well as Charlie Finley, Elizabeth Hannon, and Guggen Singh for their support. For more information on the SCGC, please visit www.screencomposers.ca and follow us online at Screen Composers or reach out at tscs at screencomposers.ca.